0: perfection. Are you a perfectionist? To be a perfectionist suggests that you're aiming for a state of flawlessness. To be able to achieve a point where whatever you're doing, there's no defects. So for example, if you're an artist, if you're a painter, will you ever be able to paint or draw the perfect piece of art? For example, if you're a vocalist and you're recording some of your music, Can you ever do a perfect recording? I think the answer is no, because there's always room for improvement, but yet there's time limits. You can't keep going and going, but eventually you have to say, okay, that's it. That's where we're going to stop it. That's what we're going to take. What about a perfect game? If you're an athlete, is it possible to have the perfect game? Again, I I would say no. And the reason being is they take those games. They go back and look at them. And they are always critiquing, always looking for ways to make it better, to play better, to improve their skills. What about a perfect score? If you watch the Olympics, you'll notice some of the events are literally based upon judges judges determining the quality of the participant and what they're doing. And they will grade them. They'll give them a score. What's amazing is, even if you get a perfect score, it's still subjective. Does that mean that every judge would always agree that that routine was perfect? I don't think so. You see, seeking perfection is a trait that many individuals have. And in in some ways, it can be helpful. It can promote your career. It can help you become a better person. But when you seek perfection, if it's limited to a particular task that you're doing, then it's possible that it's achievable, that you can actually get it. But if perfection is tied into how you live your life and who you are, that's a completely different story. There's an article in Vox, and the headline reads, Perfectionism is killing us. More people than ever say they're feeling pressured to look and be the best, and it's taking a toll on us. Now this desire to be perfect, it can come in three different forms. There's three different types of perfectionism. The first one is entitled, "Socially Prescribed Perfectionism." This is when other people put their expectations upon you. They want you to behave a certain way. They want you to be a certain way. And that ultimately means to be perfect. And if you aren't perfect, if you make mistakes, if you are flawed, if your character is less than what they expect it to be, they can be really critical of you. If you can't meet all their expectations, there's problems. And so that puts this undue pressure to always try to be perfect to meet other people's expectations. So that's socially prescribed perfectionism, where it's coming from the outside. The other type of perfectionism is what is called self-oriented perfectionism. This is where individuals have set for themselves a very, very high standard, and they expect for themselves to be perfect. And instead of the criticism coming from outside towards you, the criticism actually comes from within you. I was talking to a therapist one time and they mentioned how many of us have this inner critic, the inner critic who wants to make us perfect. Because why? Because we may have this mindset that the only way people will like us is if we are perfect. We have to come across as being ideal, and mistakes are avoided, and when they happen, it puts a great deal of stress upon individuals. So this self-oriented perfectionism. I have often wondered when I was reading through this, if the socially prescribed perfectionists, these expectations from outside of us, if eventually they also play a role in our own self-oriented perfectionism. I mean, if you hear from other people that you need to be perfect and when you meet their expectations, they praise you, they applaud you, well, that can begin to impact how you see yourself and how you ought to be behaving in interacting with other people. But then the third one I find quite intriguing, and that is entitled other-oriented perfectionism. This is when an individual themselves put their expectations on other people. They expect other people to be perfect. They expect their children to be perfect. They expect their partner to be perfect. They expect their employees to be perfect. They expect their employer to be perfect. And when individuals disappoint us, when they don't fulfill and meet our expectations then when we become critical. All three of these is based upon a desire to be perfect for a wide variety of reasons, either coming from others, from within oneself. And what that perfection looks like, it can vary from one person to another. But what happens if the source and the pressure to be perfect comes from God. What does that look like? Does God expect us to be perfect? And if so, can we ever be perfect? Or does just that idea impact the quality of our life and our mental health? After this quick break, we're going to come back and talk about that. So, does God expect you to be perfect? Now, maybe God never told you directly, but maybe you've heard it through your spiritual community. Maybe you've heard it through your church or your synagogue or your mosque, this idea that you have to be perfect. Within the Christian tradition, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, it says, "'Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect.'" So there's this idea within Christianity, there's this expectation that we are to be perfect, that God expects that of us. And the way that it works, the premise upon which all of this built, goes back into a literal reading of Genesis. Individuals see in Genesis that the first couple, Adam and Eve, are created perfect. They are sinless. They are in a state of perfection. But then they make a bad choice, and because of that bad choice, they lose their perfection. So now they are sinful because of their act, their choice. So they have moved from the state of being perfect to a state of not being perfect, from never having done anything wrong to have done something wrong, Now the problem is, if God still demands perfection and they aren't perfect, what happens? Well, Christianity would say that when this takes place, that God, if you're not perfect, will have to punish you. And the ultimate form of that punishment is death. So if you continue to live a life, if you continue to sin, if you continue to make errors, mistakes— willfully or unwillfully, it doesn't matter, then you are no longer perfect. And you deserve, according to many Christians, death. Text in Romans where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another New Testament passage, for the wages of sin is death. But here's where it gets a little bit more confusing. Not only do Christians teach that our actions make us imperfect, but they also teach that who we are, our very nature, is not perfect. That we have a sinful nature that our emotions, our thoughts, our actions, all of those arise from this sinful part of this being of who we are. So on the surface level, you have all these actions that take place. But at a deeper level, who you are, that is the problem. So you can modify your behavior. But if until you address the bigger issue, which is that you're sinful, you will never be perfect. So how do you get out of that? How do you become perfect? How do you erase this sinful nature that you're apparently born with? How do you do that? The only way, according to many Christians, is you have to find it outside of yourself. You can't do it on your own. And that's why Christians look to Jesus, who they see as being the perfect human being, both God and human never sinned, never made a mistake, did not have a sinful nature. Therefore, his perfection can become our perfection. Well, that works for a while until you make a mistake, until you sin, and then it all starts all over again. It's like this cycle, and it it's circular. It just keeps going around and around You sin, you ask for forgiveness, you are forgiven, you are restored to a state of perfection, and then you do it again. You make another mistake, you make another sin, and the whole cycle, and it just goes on and on. And to be honest, it's really, really discouraging. The guilt, the guilt of always doing something wrong. I mean, that's, I remember as a kid thinking, how many times can God forgive me for this thing? I keep doing it and doing it. Will God ever get tired of forgiving me? Will God ever say, "Hey, Tony, you know, you really don't, you really don't want to be forgiven"? Because if you did, you would stop doing it. But the other challenge that individuals who believe in Christian perfection that it is necessary is that they would tell you that our sinful nature is never completely erased until at a later time in the future. Why do I say that? Because again, the majority of Christians who believe in Christian perfectionism would say that we continue to err, we continue to sin. And where is the source of that? It, According to them, it's coming from inside of you. So stop and think about that. Individuals who believe in Christian perfectionism more than likely they are fully aware of their shortcomings, and it's sometimes even exaggerated. And what typically happens at a very young age, they were taught that they weren't good enough. That who they were, more than just what they do, but who they are is fatally flawed. So when you are raised with that, then this desire to become perfect, to live this life, to not have to continue to be a part of that cycle, it can become a driving force and it can have serious implications, serious uh, complications and consequences in one's life and one's mental health. We're going to address that right after this quick break. One of the consequences of seeking Christian perfectionism is this desire to be in control of all the different aspects of one's life. Think about it. If your goal is to obtain perfection, then there has this desire within us to try to control everything about ourselves. So we want to control our emotions, how we feel, because... Many people would say that the sins of the flesh would include anger, lust, hatred, jealousy. These are seen by many Christians as being sinful. These are emotions that you are not to relish in. These are not emotions that you're proud of. They are emotions that exist, but but they're bad, simply put. So you need to control those. So you don't feel angry, so you don't feel lust, so you don't feel hatred. But not only does that control come to our emotions, but it comes to our thoughts. I I am certain that you are like me, in that you are inundated with thoughts that are intruding into your mind. Thoughts that you would prefer never darken the space between your two ears. Right? You know, have that, the monkey mind, it just starts going. It's like a, a, a mouse on this wheel, and it just keeps turning and turning, and, and you're not going anywhere because these thoughts continue to inundate you. And what happens if those thoughts don't meet the expectations of what people say God wants for you? Then what do you do? Those thoughts... What do you do with those? You try to control them. You try to control your actions. And we even try to control our bodies. Because again, many Christians are taught that human beings were created to live forever. Their bodies were meant to exist for eternity. Adam and Eve, perfect example of it. But because of sin and death, our bodies decay. So that alone is something that you can try to control the aging process, but you can't. And that can create a lot of angst within oneself. So that's the first consequences, is this need to be in control. The second consequence is that we learn that we cannot trust ourselves. That we can't trust ourselves. And you can't really be yourself. Because if you see yourself as having this sinful nature, then who you are needs to be transformed. It needs to somehow be changed. You have to become someone else. And then once you become another person, then hopefully your actions and your thoughts and emotions, they'll align with that. I remember as a kid being taught taught that this whole idea that I had to die to my old self. Paul talks about this, dying to the old self and coming up a new person. What does that teach us? Psychologically, what does that do to us? That who you are is not acceptable. Not acceptable, not only just to other people, but to the ultimate God. And you have to die to who you are. You have to die to your emotions and your thoughts and your your desires. All of that has to be dead. And then you become something else. I really believe this. It was a part of me. And I remember one time someone said, "You know what, Tony, you want to become this ultimate guru. Someone who never does anything wrong, someone who's always at peace, someone who doesn't get upset." And they said, is that living? Is that really who we are? And it hit me at that moment. If we are willing to believe in science and couple that with our religious beliefs, then we have to wrestle with the idea of evolution. That the creation accounts that we have, they are myths that try to explain the origins of humanity at a time when they did not have science. But if we believe in evolution, then ultimately humans will never be perfect because they're always evolving into something else. So therefore, we need perhaps, and I believe do need, to embrace our imperfection. Now, that doesn't mean you never become a better person, it doesn't mean that you try to change and grow, but your, your desire for that, your, your underlying motive is not to appease some deity or to appease other people. You do it for yourself, that you want to become who you really are. You want to develop into your full potential. You want to mature. You want to become whole one writer said the following we would be we would benefit if we came into acceptance of the natural state of life which by the way happens to be imperfect been preparing for this podcast i have one of these pencils i use on my ipad <laughs> there are times when i'm writing and I don't know about you, but if it has no lines on, on my iPad, the, I tend to go at a slant. It slowly begins to go either up or down. And that bothers me. You know, the only person seeing it is me. No one has ever made a comment that, oh, your line is crooked. No one ever has. But it's that self-critic inside of myself. Having grown up with this idea that God expects me to be perfect— that is still a part of me. And I no longer rationally believe that, but it's still a part of me, this desire to be perfect. Maybe if I can ever get my mind wrapped around it, and perhaps for you too, get your mind wrapped around it, is that you weren't created. You would evolve to become perfect. You are imperfect. You will always be imperfect. So then what do we do with that text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, first of all, that word in the Greek can literally mean perfect, without flaw. But there's another possibility. The word has a different nuance to it, and that is instead of meaning perfect it can refer to maturity or whole to achieve a sense of wholeness and there's a big difference between being whole and being perfect you can be whole you can grow and become the person that you have inherently within you and you can tap into that and become that to become whole but it does not mean, again, does not mean that you're perfect. There are many individuals who believe in Christian perfectionism who, like myself, have gotten tired of it. They're tired of the guilt, tired of the shame. And so instead of rethinking it, people are walking away from it. And what I would offer is the challenge, instead of walking away completely, I would offer the challenge of rethinking what it is that you really believe. Now, how does it tie with the information that we've gleaned in this 21st century? What what does it do to your beliefs when you take that and mesh it together? And I find that to be quite, quite exciting, to be honest with you taking evolution and science and the discoveries and taking that and bringing it with these ancient religious beliefs and seeing how they can meld together and work in the 21st century so that we become people who really care about each other, who turn to peace instead of war. But it means you have to take the time to rethink What is important to you? To rethink your own religious and spiritual beliefs. And that can happen even quicker when it's done in a group of people. People that maybe believe different or the same as you. Having a diverse group of people that you bounce ideas off to learn from. I know it made a difference for me. Christian perfectionism, rationally, is something that I've given up. But it is not something that has let go of me psychologically. Maybe something I'll wrestle with the rest of my life. But I'm not willing to walk away from all of Christianity as I rethink my beliefs. I'm not ready to walk away from it because I still see value of it in my own life and in society. So, if you are in the process of deconstructing, if you are in the process of rethinking your Christian beliefs, I would love to hear from you. I would love to discover some of the challenges and opportunities that you are experiencing right now. And you can send that information to me at media at BeatitudesChurch.org. I would love to hear from you, and I will respond to you and find out where you are in your journey. And so as you journey on in life, I hope that you'll stay safe and that today and tomorrow, you'll be kinder to yourself, more loving to yourself, and embrace the fact that you are not perfect and you never will be. Take care.